This is Strange Assembly, episode 149, High Noon. Hello. Well, it's only fair, Jay, that you should get the first normal word since... This is about Doomtown, and you're the one who actually played in and top 16 in both of the high noon tournaments of Doomtown Reloaded at Gen Con 2014. True. And then uh, I made the cut in both tournaments and then immediately scrubbed out of both tournaments. So Once you've made the cut, is it really scrubbing out? I leave that up to you. I say no, sir. I say no. Especially since, right, that was top 16 out of more than, you know, 33, so. It's such a blur at this point. I feel like Friday was top 8. Okay. I don't remember now. All right. Well, before we blur our audience anymore, I am Chris Stevenson, and the man behind the curtain is Jay Earl. Bang. You are listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can check us out at strangeassembly.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, or visit us uh, at Strange Assembly on Twitter. Today, we are going to be going a little bit more in depth about Doomtown. Jay and I are going to talk about, uh, well, Jay is going to talk about his experiences with Doomtown at Gen Con, and we're going to talk a little bit about strategery. Strategery, which is probably a good word for the the level for that we're aiming do, for yes. here. And and I was going to say, and the meta to the extent that such a thing can be said to exist. <laughs> yeah. So, Mister, I can barely remember anything. Who are you again? Give us your tournament report. <laughs> okay. The short version of it is both days I was I'm pretty sure I was playing the fastest deck out there. So if you're not hugely familiar with Doomtown, I was playing the Sloan Gang, which is the Outlaws. I was playing a shoot 'em up deck. Basically I structured my deck to try to win shootouts very well. I'll go into more of that when we start talking about strategy. And then I also was trying to control the town square and use several of the Sloan tactics to win basically just by owning the town square and getting control points that way. And basically this led to a lot of games that only went like two turns or three turns because I would start rocketing up control points and my opponent would have to come into town square to deal with me or I won earlier. I think I only had one game that did not have a shootout, and that one I won on turn two. Just mostly, he got a bad draw, he made a play mistake, and I capitalized on it. But, again, a lot of what I did was basically, I go into Town Square, I'm racking up control points, they have to come into Town Square and shoot out with me, and I would just stay in the shootout the whole time. So, most of my losses were just, you know, probably half of my losses were just my deck did not draw well. I lost track of how many times I saw, like, three pair or four pair, which is not what you want to be drawing. Uh, 
Really? No. And then the other half was cheating, co- cheating <laughs> getting pulled on me. Although sometimes I won despite the cheating. I mean, I just think to recall one game against a Law Dogs player where basically he had a lot of obvious cheating punishment on the board. And so I was very timid at first about cheating. So we just got into this back-and-forth shootout where we would be, like, one hand rank different. And at some point I was just like, you know what? I'm going to cheat once. He's going to offload on me, and then I don't have to worry about it anymore. So that's what happened. He, I cheated once. He made me pay for it, but not too badly. The next hand I cheated even harder and just wiped his board at that point. So, yes, cheating is bad, kids. Just don't get caught. <laughs> now, when we talked in our overview episodes, you said that you completely changed your decks between Friday and Saturday, and yet it seemed like both of your decks could fairly be described as heavily shootout-focused Sloan decks that wanted to control Town Square. Yes, so getting a little bit more into the strategy of the game in general, Basically, and I think you wrote an article like two months ago because you got a review copy. I'm shaking my fist at you for this now. Anyway, one of the things in deck construction you have is that there's sort of this continuum. On one hand, you have the 416s or 316s deck where every card in the deck is one of three values such that you have super consistent shootout draws. On the other hand, you have just super strong cards. You don't care anything at all about your shootout values. You're going to win on actions versus con- versus winning shootouts. Most decks are going to be somewhere in the middle there. I was very heavily, not all the way to the 316s deck, but I was very heavily both days in that camp of probably 75% of the cards in my deck were one of three values with enough room for just there were a couple of cards that were just too powerful not to put in the deck even though they're off value and so basically the big switch out and now I have to go back to my memory if I remember correctly on Friday my numbers were like three, four, five, maybe? Definitely four. <laughs> it's because that has ambush and other has, broken things. That has ambush, and at the time I thought ambush was the godsend. But then I realized ambush doesn't really work for that deck. But then, so Saturday I actually switched off of fours, but I think my deck right now... I want fours back in because, or I splash kidnapping because being able to jump Morgan is still good. Anyway, so it went from like three, four, five to on Friday I got to use the the one of my off values was the legendary holster, which is amazing. So to really help me fuel that, I switched it to Ace three five, which meant that more than two thirds of my deck. Putting the legendary holster on a two would ace somebody in the shootout, which is pretty good. The idea of the deck stayed the same of, 
I'm going to go to town square. I'm going to win shootouts. I'm going to force you to deal with me. No matter what happens, we're going to end this game soon. It's just that what those pe- what pieces made that up drastically changed between the two days. And I don't think you were alone in having a pretty heavy thing like that. If you look at the uh, Jim uh, Despaw, the winner of the Friday tournament, his Law Dogs deck, it wasn't focused in three, it was focused in four cards, but still five out of right, six so, cards in that deck there, yeah. were... I mean, yeah, again, you've very much got this continuum. You cannot play at the exact ends. You are way too constrained if every card in your deck is one of three values. You are never going to win a shootout if you don't pay any attention to your values. Morgan can get away with that because they're just they they don't want to get into shootouts anyway. But pretty much everybody else needs to be cognizant of their values, so they're probably going to build their deck around three or four main values, depending on the deck, and then work around that with powerful cards. Yeah, and I think when I wrote that article, it was sort of yeah more in terms of actually running suites of sixteen, and I don't think. You would even do something like pick two suites of 16 and have the rest spread out. I, I think you're always going to be more spread out than that. Right. I mean, honestly, right now, there just aren't enough good deeds or, in some values, dudes to really be able to effectively do that. No. No. I would not be surprised if a year from now, when we've had several saddlebags and at least one pine box, if that is a much more doable proposition when you can actually play four different deeds at a value, when you could actually play three different dudes at a value that are actually playable dudes. But right now, I think, I would have to double check, but I think every deed value has two deeds at it. That sounds right. And most dudes... It, dudes, it really depends on which faction, because if you start looking, each faction sort of has their clump numbers. Yeah. Yes, I, I noticed this because the other day I was sorting out my cards, which is very clever of them. I mean, for, for instance, things like the fourth ring is clumped much higher, Sloan is clumped much lower, because those are doing very different things. There were many reasons why, when I started naming off the values for my Sloan deck, they were all low numbers. In in general, the actions at the low numbers are more broadly useful. And when you look, I, I think at least, when you look at the higher numbers, you tend to start seeing more of the better things like hex cards and, to some extent, gadget cards. And that's probably not a coincidence because you need high pulls for right. those decks. <laughs> Putting all the good hexes at ace probably does not go well for the hex decks. No, yeah. I mean, they obviously were very clever with how they structured the values of things. We mentioned uh, Jim Despaw's deck. He was playing a Law Dogs deck that was pretty, at least as it would be arrayed against Sloan, which was what you oh, were yeah, playing, but- which was the most common, was pretty shootout-focused and was pretty heavy cheat and punishment focus. Now, I would ask you what you did at Gen Con to be able to counter that, but I know the answer is you got shot in the face and lost. Yes, I'm reasonably certain 
I mean, I mean, again, blur, but I'm reasonably certain he is the one I lost to in top eight. He was my first opponent there. Yes, because when Mike actually watched that match and commented that he was the one who beat you. Right. Basically, my recollection, because at that point it was best two of three, and all three games were super tight slugfests where, again, my deck was, I'm in town square, let's get in a shootout, and he was all too happy to oblige, so he would just have these slugfests of differing by a rank or two, and especially if he was punishing me for cheating successfully, which I was cheating quite often. My Sloan deck was starting Barton, who says that if if I'm cheating, I go up a hand rank. So I normally want to be cheating. I've had rank 11 hands where I have five of a kind cheating. I've also pissed off doomed uh, law dog players by having five of a kind not cheating. Always funny. But yeah, I mean... Very much, he was punishing me for cheating, which, as a cheating Sloan, makes makes a lot of really tough decisions where I'm like, do I do this five-of-a-kind cheating, or is it actually better for me to back down to four-of-a-kind, since that's only losing a rank, but it doesn't let him trigger anything? But yeah, he, he beat me two-to-one, so... Okay, now, and I, I think Law Dogs were the, I think those were the second most played outfit on the day, or on the weekend. Did that, is that what you saw, or? My recollection was, Friday there was a lot of Sloan. Both days there was a healthy amount of Law Dogs. I did not have much experience with Morgan or Fourth Ring. I think I only actually played against two Fourth Rings all weekend. Yes, and we will get to the Fourth Ring. Well, heck, well, let's get to the Fourth Ring now. Okay, so Morgan was not as represented, but since a Morgan deck piloted by Brian Fox won the Saturday tournament, and then he uh, had a shootout with Despot on Sunday and won that match, and so became the overall Gen Con champion. AEG posted that deck list up uh, with some minimal commentary by Fox, so I imagine that that will drastically surge the popularity of Morgan Cattle Company. When, as you point out to me, the game has not actually come out yet. Since I have an episode to edit before I edit this one, it probably will be out by the time we, we release this. But still, Fourth Ring, on the other hand, didn't really see much in the way of success for Fourth Ring, and although it has some powerful hexes, it seems like it's in a tougher spot. Do you think that Fourth Ring is actually weaker in some objective sense than the other factions are right now, or is it just that they're harder to figure out and so people just have not gotten there yet? It is really hard to say if they're objectively weaker. I had a loss to a fourth ring deck, and I had another game that was... I won off pure luck against a fourth ring deck, where basically he wiped me down to just Ali, then got in a shootout with her with his one left last guy. She's a two-draw. I drew up a full house 
for whatever reason, threw the pair away and then top-decked into five of a kind. So I should not have won that game. So I don't think that Fourth Ring is weak. I just think that they are the too many moving pieces. I mean, if Morgan also has this, if they did not have the expansionist deck, if they had to do the run-them-down and or Mad Scientist deck, they would be in the same bucket of there's a lot of pieces there. You have to play it really well, and you also have to deck build really well. So I think fourth ring in general, but then also I I do feel like there's a Morgan run-them-down deck. I think both of those are going to take a while for the community to experiment and figure out how to play. But once people figure those out, those are going to be really tough. That can transfer us over to Morgan Cattle Company. Now, Fox's deck was not... uh, You know, some people want to describe it as dudes and deeds, and it does not at all feel like dudes and deeds to me. Right, it's it's landfall. Yeah, landfall, yeah. It's it's deeds and more deeds and... Clubs. Yes, here's a stack of clubs to try to get you away from me and generally right. not actually have to do shootouts. And if the deck isn't interfered with, it's basically just I buy deeds and then I buy more deeds and then I buy more deeds. And hey, I've got so many deeds that you can't possibly keep up with the number of control points I'm generating. So I win without ever really doing a shootout if I'm lucky. So it is very much a deck that is a long game deck. The longer the game goes, the better it is for that deck. So if you're playing against it, you have to get it off its game as soon as possible. You have to take over its deeds, or it gets economy, and you just can't keep up with it. The faster you can win, the better. If the game is going on, you're going to lose. You need to stop it as soon as you can. Be that killing its dudes off, be that taking control of its deeds. So it doesn't get economy. Once it gets its economy going, it's just going to be a snowball. It's going to be really hard to stop. And it does have some mobility of its own, although it may be trying to use its mobility to get away from you. Right. It it definitely has some tricks. For instance, if you are playing the deck, pro tip that a lot of a lot of people may not notice: make the smart choice is a card that says reduce somebody's bullet, as a shootout action, reduce somebody's bullets by their influence, they may move home if they so choose. It never says you have to hit the opposing dude who is not going to run away. You can hit your dude and use it to run them away. Ah! Yeah. I am making the smart choice, and I am not going to get shot by the Sloan over there. <laughs> Now, one of the broad strategic things that has come up with Doom Time Reloaded is Travis Moon, the one and only grifter for right now. I noticed that, unless I'm misrecalling, uh, Despot and Fox both were running the Mulligan Man, uh, and I believe he came in and out of your deck over the course of the weekend. So what are your current thoughts on the Moon Pie? So he he very much depends on how your deck is set up to start. So yeah, I mean, I went back and forth. Day one, I did not include him because I was like, whatever, I don't need this 
this extra card hanging around. I'm not going to need the mulligan. And then I played the first tournament. I'm like, okay, I now see the value of this. I'm going to put him in the deck. And so I put him in my starting lineup, and I enjoyed using the mulligan a few times, but then I realized I was building my economy off not having him in my starting posse, which meant where before I had, like, five Ghost Rock to play with, I now had three, which for some of the deeds is a significant deal. You think? <laughs> yeah. So I was back off of him for a little bit, and then I played some more this past weekend, and it really depends on your deck, but you can't just toss him in and be like, yeah, whatever. You do need to think about him as he's hanging out. He's not just cannon fodder to be tossed in. While two is super cheap, that is still a cost you are paying. If that drops your starting ghost rock below your deed threshold, that is a huge deal. I think that is what turned me off of him Saturday, and I've come around. So, so let me put this as insultingly as possible. What you're saying is That's that what I'm saying is I'm an idiot. It's a real takeaway here? No. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. So my deck is a little weird in that I'm owning Town Square. I'm not really buying a lot of stuff throughout the course of the game, so I'm not hugely concerned about my economy. But even so, you do need to be aware of your economy. That is going to make or break most decks. You really do want to be able to play a deed turn one to get your economy going. If you don't, that is probably going to be trouble for you. I mean, unless you're doing something crazy like no upkeep in your start, so you can just use your box every turn. You're just not going to be making enough if you don't drop a deed in the first turn or two to really last you a full game. Ugh. I'm trying to think how hideously weak your starting posse would be if it had nobody with an upkeep. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, so uh, as you noted, uh, we've had the review copy of, of Doomtown for a bit. Uh, you've had the experience of playing at Gen Con. There are going to be a lot of people who are about to get or just got Doomtown Reloaded on September 8th. And when they are sitting down to build their first decks, what are the basic options you think that they will be looking at? Well, so firstly, I, w I would say probably what you want to do is not copy Fox's deck because that's going to be a high-level deck. So basically just running through the, f the factions fairly quickly, the fourth ring, I feel, is, is the most limited in options, just because they pretty much are all about the hexes. So you're, you're basically just building a hex deck. And as I was saying before, that right now is probably one of the more complicated ones to build. So unless you're, like, seriously behind the fourth ring, that's probably not where you want to be starting. Law Dogs... I'll be honest, before Gen Con, I did not see how to win with Law Dogs. I saw what they did, but I didn't quite see how to win with it. Now I see what... The, they're very much a, a controlled deck. They are going to basically make guys wanted, punish them for being wanted, punish them for cheating, 
and basically use that to deal with really nasty threat, but then also just take control of the board, take over, hopefully take over enough of the opponent's control points, have their own control points, take out any high influence that they can win like that. For instance, they can do things like use the box to make somebody wanted, send a gunslinger after them, the little token dude, and then if they, if the other player tries to cheat, they can coach whip to kill whoever that is for sure. So then we'll go into Sloan. Sloan, I actually see two options, though I'm not sure how effective the second one is just yet. Firstly, you can do what I was doing, which is basically you own Town Square, and you call everybody else chicken, and you get a bunch of control points as long as you can own Town Square between the box and alley. And then option two is what I like to call the Let's Be Bad Guys deck, which is your opponent plays a deed, you're like, hey, that looks like a cool deed, I'm going to go hang out there and then steal some money from them, because there's a couple cards that you steal money from their deeds. And then finally, that leaves us with Morgan, who actually has the most options, with three in my mind. They have the deed expansion, which is pretty much what Fox was doing, was pure deed expansion, but they also have both the horses and the mad scientists, the gadgets. So I would not be surprised as the game gets more mature to see what I've been calling the run-them-down deck, where basically you do like the current Morgan deck of splitting out, forcing the opponent to spread themselves thin to deal with all your control points, but instead of running away from every fight, you get all your guys and horses and jump people by themselves such that you just take out one guy at a time. So I, I would not be the least bit surprised to see that be a deck as we start evolving. Those are the options I see for the various factions right now. I'm probably missing some, but game's not even out yet. I feel no guilt about that. Do you have any uh, flavor preferences for the different factions? What with giant rat men not being an option? Let's be bad guys. I'm... I'm I loved Blackjack. I'm, I'm taking up Blackjack 2.0 in Sloan. Well, then I will just have to punish your cheating sorry hide, won't I? If you must, I'll just, uh, you know, be better at cheating. Yeah. Well, you have to be, because it... Coach Whip and Bottom Dealing, I feel like yeah. you're going to see a lot. I mean... Yeah, but I mean, just even because of the way the values come out, there's a couple other less nasty cheating actions I saw in the tournament that are going to get some play. For instance, there's one that gave gave me quite a bit of fear for a while was the if they're cheating and you are not, switch hands. But yeah, I mean, bottom dealing is amazingly strong. One of my favorite stories from Friday, which got turned against me on Saturday, was playing against another Sloan player, we get into massive shootout, we both draw, we both go five of a kind, cheating, I bottom dealing him into a pair, and wipe his board, because we now have, instead of tied hand ranks, we now have a nine hand rank, nine point hand rank difference. And as I said, I got that against me on Saturday. 
Yes, because there is nothing that prevents you from calling your opponent out for cheating, even though you're a cheating dog yourself. Well, yeah, he was cheating, so I was cheating. Who cares? He didn't. He didn't ask. <laughs> did you notice that I have three three of clubs in my hand? No, you did not, sir. But <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, I I definitely think, especially because shootouts are so big, that cheating punishment is also. I mean, it's just going to swing games. There's no way it won't. I'll be interested to see when we get some more advanced fourth ring discussion going on and or, or they take a bigger presence in the meta if a lot of those really good cheating punishment cards are low clubs and if they have to kind of stay away those from those because they're concentrating at higher values, how that might affect the strength of cheating. Well, I mean, keep in mind there are some pretty quality cheating options available to them. I seem to recall one of... There's one cheating resolution that's something like uh, discard a spell, do a pull, that's now your hand rank, which, if you build your deck to be regularly making pulls... Especially if you're building it like regularly hitting tens. To okay, so you're cheating. That's okay. I've got a hand rank ten. That's pretty good. Is it strange that that really seems less scary than most things? I it's sort of like, well, isn't your cheating hand rank like a nine at least anyway? Yeah. I mean, it's um, yeah, it's probably not the most powerful, but it definitely is not worthless either that's not nothing i mean if their hand rank goes from a six or a seven to a ten that's uh not trivial especially if that goes from you know losing by two to winning by one right i definitely had games that were down to just one or two points of hand rank difference makes the game one last random strategy thing when i'm thinking myself it seems to me that when you should always just be, if you have multiple casualties against you, you should just start acing your guys. Is there any reason why you would ever just send a bunch of people to Boot Hill that you can think of rather than just acing some? Uh, first off, Boot Hill is acing someone. I'm you sorry. Meant the discard pile. I mean your discard pile. Yes. Yes. Um. Ever stupid lingo. New game. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> I mean, it really, really depends on the game. I am completely the wrong person to ask because the decision to send some send two guys to the discard instead of sending one guy to Boot Hill is if you think this is going to be a long game, A, being able to see those guys in your deck again, and B, being able to play those guys again can make a huge difference. I, I had one game I was messing around with Mike where... He played uh, Steven... I've forgotten the last name. The the guy who's one to play, but six to keep around. Sure, sure. Yeah, one-turn rental. Yeah, one-turn rental. He played him, got into a shootout, he gets aced, which means now the second and third copy in his deck are dead cards. So if he has him discarded instead of aced, the second and third copy in the deck are now playable cards again. Yeah, well, yeah, and he is a guy that you could actually see running 
a bunch of in a deck. Uh, as I, he, he's sort of the one dude that you can cycle <laughs> on his own if you're trying to maintain a draw structure. Right. There are certainly situations where it would be the better move to discard two guys over acing one. They're, for the most part, weird corner cases just because, yes, you need warm bodies on the table. So, for a lot of purposes, the discard and the ace pile are about the same. They're no longer in play. They're not going to come back overly soon. But there are certainly some scenarios where you would rather them be discarded. Okay. Do you have any brilliant or no. not so brilliant yes. insights for our audience before we check out tonight? No, I think I've said everything overly interesting. Okay, so I will leave with this one thought. Again, I I was just playing the deck that is trying to hold a town square. but. Even there, I could see one of the biggest things is movement in this game. Part of the reason that strategy of holding Town Square is so strong is because that majorly restricts your opponent's movement. They can no longer get unbooted to somewhere that's not next to their home if they can't safely go through Town Square. So it is very much a game of movement. There are somewhat complicated movement rules as far as what boots you versus what doesn't. Everybody gets confused. If there's one thing to pay attention to, it is that of how can I move without booting? Learn that and you should be good. Learn how the movement works. I have played games where basically just being moved out of position is what wins or loses the game of oh my best guy is booted somewhere off to the side therefore he can't join in the action therefore I lose the game like you you first look at the horses and you're like what is this this doesn't do anything for me and then you play a few games I think especially given how many Wendy's and pistol whips are running around I think maybe one of the most underrated cards is the horse that moves you in as a shootout action. I think the most amazing thing about all of that is that you said, I just have one last thing to say. And then took ten minutes, yeah. No, and then did not say squeak. <laughs> I, maybe, are you, it's like you're okay. growing as a person. No, that can't be the case. <laughs> uh, yes, w- Wendy is nasty. Yeah, the the stakes just rose. That also seems uh, like a convenient the card. The stakes rose is huge. You have to realize, both Wendy and Pistol Whip, it's not that you're getting people out. It's that you're getting exerting control over who is in the shootout, which is huge. One of, one of the main flaws in my deck, I realized after the fact, was my starting posse only had one real shooter, Everyone else was secondary shooters at best, which meant if you could deal with my one shooter, I was in trouble. Now, I could my deck was stacked well enough that I could still get lucky even with third string shooters, but it was a lot harder and a lot scarier if I didn't have my main shooter in. Travis Moon versus the world. Yeah. 
No, what's scary is Allie versus the world, and <laughs> she pulls it off somehow. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that we are going to wrap up our Doomtown talk for today. Maybe if I nag Jay enough, I'll get him to write some sort of article about playing Sloan for the website, but probably not. Oh, uh, maybe. Let me, let me find a free weekend somewhere between here and November, and I'll do it. Uh, yeah, now we we tend to fill your weekend schedule up with, you know, playing games. Right. That's, that's the problem with trying to write about games, is that it takes away from, you know, actually playing them. Pretty much, yeah. But uh, we, we do it anyway, because we love you guys. Or no, that doesn't like sound us. right. <laughs> uh, but... You have been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can visit us at www.strangeassembly.com or subscribe to the Strange Assembly podcast on iTunes. You can find us at facebook.com slash strangeassembly or at strangeassembly on Twitter. You can reach me at chris at strangeassembly.com. I always like to hear from you. But until then, for J. Earl... I'm Chris Stevenson. Never stop gaming. Draw, partner.